So Jesus, help us know how we can apply that scripture in our life to stand firm in our faith and take stands for you in your name. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Good to see all of you here, 945 service, glad you are here. Those of you in the uh, 11 o'clock service, welcome also our, our uh, middle schoolers, high schoolers, people at home watching right now, thanks for, thanks for being here. Uh, I remember uh, coming home from seminary one year for summer break, and in the airport, I put my bags down right in front of one of those carts, you know, where you get the little, the little machine, you get the cart, you pay the money, you get the cart for your luggage. I put it down right in front of it, didn't notice that I'd done that. And this older woman couldn't get her cart out. And she just laid into me. I can't get my cart out. I lost my dollar because of you. You're a very rude young man. You're what's wrong with this country, right? Just like on and on and on. And I said, I'm sorry. I didn't notice. I'm sorry. Here, let me get you a new cart. And she said, I don't want your money, you hippie. <laughs> like who uses that word, right? Like it's not 1968, like, especially to a seminary student, right? So, and, I, and she just kept at me, kept arguing, kept yelling. Finally, I got so impatient, I flung a dollar at her and said, here's your dollar, now be quiet. Oh. <laughs> Do you think that was wrong? <laughs> I was coming home from seminary where I was studying to be a pastor. Now, I apologize to her, but, but, but how could my actions be so different than what I believe? Do you ever do that? No, don't look at me like you don't. I mean, of course you do, right? Believe one way, but do something else under pressure. Maybe it's a heated situation like that. Maybe it's, you know, you give in to some kind of temptation over and over and over again, or give in to cultural pressures to look a certain way, behave a certain way, hold certain opinions. Maybe it's peer pressure that you face, peer pressure at school or, or at work, or your boss wants you to cut some ethical corners. Or coworkers on a business trip want you to go to a strip club with them or drink more than you should. Or maybe sometimes you feel like you need to hide the fact that you go to church. Don't let other people know. I know when I was teaching on the Stanford campus, there were, were very hostile to Christianity. I felt a lot of peer pressure to hide the fact that I was a Christian, which I tried to resist that pressure. But let's be honest, sometimes we don't want to resist that pressure, right? Sometimes we want to fit in. We don't want to be counterculture. Counter we want to fit in. We want to go along with the crowd. We want to do what everyone else is doing. The problem is just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it right. It just makes it popular. And sometimes it can be destructive, right? So we have to be careful when we follow the masses because sometimes the M is silent. I'll just wait for you to get that. Other service didn't do any better, so. <laughs> Plus, if our Christian commitment doesn't at least sometimes put us in direct opposition with some of the values of our world, then maybe it's not Jesus that we're following. Maybe we've made Jesus the cosmic Santa Claus in the sky whose job is to get me what I want, not to transform me and through the, me change the world. But there are some really cool rewards for being people who do the right thing no matter what the cost is, and there is always a cost. For starters, we go from being thermometers that merely register the cultural temperature to thermostats that change it for the better. We also become, second, we also become the people that deep down we want to be and that Jesus designed us to be. I don't want to be the man who could have lived with courage and integrity. I want to be the man who did. 
And the third reward, is, the third reward is it is just rewarding. It feels good. There is a satisfaction in doing the right thing no matter the cost. So then how do we do that? How do we live with courage, integrity, conviction, consistent with what we say we believe, no matter how much pressure we face from internal temptations or the peer pressure or cultural pressure around us? How do we stand firm? Well, in the story we just read, Daniel and his friends, they would have been about 15 or 16 years old at this time, so they're teenagers, right? They take a stand for their faith, but they do it in a way that's maybe different than what we think of when we hear that phrase, take a stand for Jesus. They do it so graciously that other people are just kind of drawn into the process. Now, the background here is that the Babylonian Empire has uh, conquered Jerusalem and taken thousands of Jews into exile in Babylon, and Daniel and his friends are some of those people. And it was very different to live as a teenager in Babylon than a teenager in Jerusalem. Because see, everything their Hebrew culture told them was good, Babylonian culture said was bad. And, and what Hebrew culture said was bad, Babylonian culture said was good. But rather than become kind of cultural conformers, they become cultural transformers by understanding five words. Who, whose, why, when, and how. They are interrogatives, if you want the grammatical category for that. Okay? Five words. First, to do the right thing in the face of peer pressure, know who you are. Know who you are. The king orders that Daniel and his friends be taught the language and literature of the Babylonians, which would have included Babylonian religion. And then it says the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now, back then, what you got to understand is your name wasn't just what you were called, okay? Your name wasn't just an identity tag. It was your character, your essence. It summed you up, who you were, what you were about, the very core of your being. And their names all point to the God of the Bible. But look at what the Babylonians do. So Daniel's name means God is my judge. In other words, I don't conform to the culture around me. I live my life to an audience of only one. But his name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel is my judge. Bel is a Babylonian god. Hananiah means I'm under God's grace. His name is changed to Shadrach, which means I'm under Aku's command. Aku, a Babylonian god. Mishael means who is like God. Meshach means who is like Aku. Azariah means servant of God. Abednego means servant of Nego, another Babylonian god. So see what they did there? Right, like this is a complete cultural reprogramming to strip them of their Hebrew faith, strip them of their Hebrew culture, and make them good Babylonians who fit into Babylonian culture and religion. But here's what's interesting. In the text, those Babylonian names are deliberately misspelled and corrupted, as if the author was trying to signal to us the untruth in their new names. Right? And here's why that matters. Here's why that matters. Because often when we give in to uh, temptation or conform to peer or cultural pressure, the reason we do that is we don't know who we really are. Parents and teachers and peers give us names that do not accurately reflect who God made us to be. A little while ago, I was talking to a man who said that, that in college, his nickname was Blockhead. It was actually a little stronger than that, but you get the point, Right? And he said, if that's how I think of myself, well, then no, mo no wonder I mess up more than I want to. And he said, what if I thought of myself as firm foundation instead? I would probably act differently. Ask God to tell you the name that he gives to you. Know who you are. Second, know whose you are. 
The kind of courage that Daniel, these four teenagers, show in the face of enormous cultural and peer pressure, that kind of courage only comes from the security of knowing that you are deeply, deeply loved by God. And their identity was not in whether or not people thought they were cool or successful or whatever. Identity was not in what people thought about them. Their identity is in whose they are, beloved sons of the Most High King. And this matters because, you know, I think sometimes in the back of our head, we have this image that God is just watching us all the time, like just watching, 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 waiting for us to screw up so he can zap us, right? That does not make you want to do the right thing. That makes you want to rebel. This week, a, a strange, thing happened, uh, strange thing happened in my office. I think it was revenge because, you know, it's possible that in previous sermons, I may have said some mean things about cats. So... It's, I might have, okay? So I think it's kind of revenge. Someone came into my office and put cats everywhere. So for instance, cat looking down at me from my bookcase. Or cat in the window. And when I logged onto my computer, that. There are cats everywhere. I, I can't wait for my first serious meeting in my office. The person's going to be like, wow, you really like cats, right? Like, no, I don't, right? Okay, I'm surrounded now by cats. I mean, there's so many more I could show you. Little cat figurines. They're all, I'm surrounded by cats watching me, watching me. That does not make me want to say a nice thing about cats. Nor will I. <laughs> Nor does the image of God constantly watching us for when we screw up inspire us to do the right thing. But when I experience God's love and I am solid in that, knowing whose I am, I'm less afraid to do the right thing because I don't care what others think. I belong to him. Know who you are, know whose you are. Third, know your why. Know your why. Why are you alive? As part of these teenagers' brainwashing process, uh, the king gave them food from his table. And the text says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. So he's going to take a stand on this, the food for his faith. But he knows, the guard says to him, you can't do that because if you end up skinnier than everyone else, the king is going to have my head. Daniel understands that. So he says, please Please test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat. Then compare our appearance with that of the other young men, which they do. And Daniel and friends end up looking better, healthier than everyone else. And the big question commentators wonder is why? Why does he take the stand on the food thing and not on all the other things? Why? And last week I gave you some reasons for that, some answers to this same text, to that question. Let me give you one more that I didn't give last week. If Daniel and friends eat the king's food and end up being healthy and strong, who gets the credit? The king. But if they refuse the king's food and, and rely on God to make them healthy and strong, now who gets the credit? God. Daniel knows his why. Why is he alive? Why is he in Babylon? He is there to make the God of the Bible who comes in human form in the person of Jesus to live in a way that makes him look good. And the way we do that is not by lecturing people, but by simply living a better story. Now, sometimes when we do the right thing and live that better story, some people won't think it's a better story. Some people will look at us and go, oh, that looks hard, or that looks difficult, or look at all the food you're not getting to eat, or, right? They'll, they won't think it looks good. But usually, if we do it in the right way with courage and humility, they will at least admire or be drawn to our self-confidence and our lack of fear of what other people think. So, for instance, when I was in high school, this sticks out so clearly to me because it made an impact on me. When I was in high school, I wasn't a Christian. I remember asking a woman that I worked with on New Year's Eve if she was going to go out drinking that night. 
And she said, no, not my cup of tea. Seems like a really good way to ruin an otherwise really fun night. You know, you throw up and then you wake up with a headache. Not my thing. So my friends and I were going to go miniature golfing, then we're going to do a midnight bike ride, and she listed all these activities, none of which sounded fun to me at all. But her calm confidence, without a hint of judgmentalism, made me wonder, how do I get that secure in myself? How do I get what you have? You, are not, you don't worry what other people think about you. You're not caving into peer pressure the way I always cave into peer pressure. How did you get that self-confident? It made me want what she had, and I knew she was a Christian, and that went into my memory bank. Like, wow, that's different. I also thought she had a point about the throwing up thing. So, <laughs> like, you're right. Why do we do that, right? Our why is not to be Jesus' religious enforcers who chastise people when they do the wrong thing. That's not what it means to take a stand for Jesus. That's what it means to be a jerk, all right? Our why is to live in a way that makes Jesus look good. Who, whose, why, next, no when. When to take a stand and maybe when not to. One of the most remarkable things about this passage is the extent to which Daniel and his friends will go to accommodate and conform to the culture around them. They submit to religious indoctrination, name changes without protest, right? What they are is they're wise. They're picking their battles carefully. And they pick the battle that you and I might not pick, this whole food thing, right? I wouldn't have picked that battle. I'd have been, you know, like, wow, this exile kind of sucks, but the food here is amazing, right? But see, they understand that that food, which looks pretty innocent, is actually the most dangerous thing in the whole program. Because see, the king is trying to get them addicted to Babylonian luxuries. Give them enough Babylonian luxuries and pretty soon they'll be saying, you know what, this exile thing is not so bad. I kind of like it here. Name changes they can ignore. Right? I know my name. Call me what you want. I know my real name. Even the indoctrination program, right? Look. Having taught all those years in college, I know students are more than capable of figuring out what the teacher wants to hear and spitting it back on the, answer, on the test without ever agreeing with the teacher, right? When my daughter was in first grade for Martin Luther King Day, they had to draw a picture that represented their dream, and she drew this picture and wrote on it, my dream is that everyone would love each other and not fight. She brought it home, she showed it to us, and we're like, oh, sweetheart, that's so nice, very good, honey, very good. She said, yeah, but that's not my real dream. My real dream is to be a princess so everyone has to do what I say. <laughs> Teachers' lessons can be ignored, right? And, and, and just by the way, yesterday, we dropped that same daughter. We dropped her off at college yesterday. I did not like that at all. I was like, oh, my, oh no, we got to say goodbye, right? The last thing I said to her roommates was, take care of my baby for me. <laughs> I, I'm sure that her roommates were like, Holly, your dad needs to like, get a grip, right? My wife, on the other hand, is just fine. We got in the car and she said, what should we do to celebrate? So, <laughs> See, the thing is, actually, the food thing that Daniel's dealing with here, that food thing is actually the deepest issue he faces because it could addict him to Babylonian culture, which was not all bad. Babylonian culture wasn't all bad. It's not bad to have nice food. But as I said last week, the devil doesn't always tempt us to do something bad, but to be overly attached to something good. So often we think taking a stand for Jesus involves some big ethical issue, and sometimes it does. But the more dangerous ways we cave to the culture and peer pressure, we don't even know we're doing it because we have accepted our culture's definition of what is good. Remember, what Hebrew culture said was bad, Babylonian culture said was good, and vice versa. 
Over the centuries, Christians have been very vocal about things like sexual morality issues, and those are important and they matter. But often we have neglected the things that actually the Bible talks about more, like caring for the poor, fighting racism, materialism, pride, and all of that. As parents, we sometimes worry more about what college our kids are going to go to or whether they make the select soccer team than we do about whether or not they love Jesus. And we don't even blink because we have accepted our culture's definition of what is good. And many of those things are good. They are good unless we become overly attached to them to the neglect of God's better things. Be wise in the battles we pick and make sure we are majoring on the things that God majors on. Who? whose, why, when, and finally, how. For most people who don't go to church, their image of Christians, quote, taking a stand for Jesus, involves Christians yelling at, yelling at everyone and judging everyone around them. But notice how Daniel does this. He says to the guard, the guard says, man, if you end up skinnier, right, like, I'm going to die, right? Daniel gets that. Okay, you got a real pressure here. So he says to the guard, please test your servants for 10 days. Please. He asks permission. He's honoring them. And he says, feed me only vegetables. So here's the question. Who bears the burden for Daniel's faith commitment? Daniel. Like he doesn't demand that everyone else eat the vegetables, right? He didn't demand that the you know, public schools offer vegetables in the cafeteria. He bears the burden of his faith and he doesn't force it on everyone else. Speaker at our men's retreat a couple years ago told a story of a man, Christian man, who worked in finance. And his partners wanted to invest in a company, part of whose portfolio involved the pornography industry. And this man wanted to, wanted to live out his Christian principles, but wanted to do it in a way that showed not only truth, but also grace. grace. So after praying about it for a while, he went to his partners and he said, look, I don't think this is a good decision. I think it's just a bad business decision. But if you guys really want to do this, I will not put up a fuss. However... I don't want one penny of the profit. And that forced a crisis of conscience far greater than if he had lectured his colleagues. And he was free from the pressure to conform. He felt secure in himself. He knew who he was. Free to be the man that he wants to be and to live with integrity and passion and purpose. But he bore the burden of his faith commitment. He didn't make everyone else do the same thing. And notice he had a gracious way of putting it that he had thought out in advance. Because you know, when the pressure is on, in that heat of the moment, it is hard to figure out a gracious way out of certain situations, right? So maybe think it up in advance. You know, if you're gonna be pressured to drink when you shouldn't or cut ethical corners, what's your line? What's your gracious way out that you think up in advance so it's ready to go? The other thing about Daniel here is he doesn't make the culture the enemy. And I fear sometimes in my preaching, it makes it sound like the culture is the enemy. And I don't want to do that, right? There are things in our culture that need healing, in every culture, right? But the culture is not our enemy. The enemy is our enemy. The culture is not our enemy. And when it comes to culture, we can be like bees. You know, bees don't go to every single flower, but they go to a lot, right? And, and there are so many good things in our culture that we, can, that we can take from. But we have to be discerning. And it's going to be different for each one of us. That movie that maybe you can see, I shouldn't see because it's going to put images in my head I don't need. One person can have that glass of wine with dinner, but someone with an alcohol problem probably shouldn't. Going to be different for all of us. I have a friend who writes a column for the New York Times, which he has to submit to an editor for a review. And one time his editor sent back one of his columns all marked up. And, and at the top, he's, the editor said, this column reads like a sermon. And I mean that in the worst possible sense of the word. Oh, but that's how our culture views us. 
sermonizing, right? Sermonizing in the worst possible sense of the word. We think that unless we let people know we disapprove of their lifestyle, that somehow we've compromised our faith. No. Jesus partied with prostitutes and terrorists. The only people Jesus ever yelled at. The only people Jesus ever criticized. The only people Jesus ever yelled at were who? Religious people. Let that sink in. He only yelled, religious people get on his nerves, right? He only yelled at religious people because they value precepts over people. We don't need to go around letting people know we disapprove of their lifestyle. Newsflash, they already know that. What they don't know is do we love them? And does Jesus love them? Who, whose, why, when, and how? So where might God be calling you to take a stand in a gracious way? simply by living a different story that is more compelling? And what are some gracious lines you can think of in advance to get out of certain peer pressure situations you may face even this week, at school or work? And will you ask God to help you experience his love and then keep your eyes open for the reminders he's gonna give you that he loves you? Maybe it's something someone says, line in a song, something goes unexpectedly well. Because it is his love, his love is what gives us true courage. His love is what makes us brave. A friend of mine told me about a woman he knows named Sarah who lives in a neighborhood, a lot of gangs, a lot of violence, a lot of uh, drug activity. And Sarah's had a rough life. By 14, she'd already had her first kid. And by the time she was 20, she had five kids, all from different dads. She was a single mom in a dangerous neighborhood. But then some people helped her experience Jesus, love. They didn't lecture her on her you know, lifestyle or anything like that. They just helped her experience Jesus' love. There's a lot of ways we can do that. Take someone to coffee, invite them in, family outings. And over time, Sarah experienced this love, and she made Jesus her leader and her forgiver. And Sarah took Jesus at his word. When he said he loved her no matter what, she believed him. And she experienced that love. Because, because she took him at his word, right? And out of that confidence, she started telling her friends about Jesus, not caring if they thought she was weird. She knew who she was. And some of those friends started following Jesus, and then they started meeting in her house, and pretty soon they had formed a church. And Sarah is the pastor of this church. Well, one night Sarah saw one of the most infamous drug lords in the, in the neighborhood sitting in his car supervising the pushers that were on the street. And she got in his car and told him about Jesus' love and said, he loves you. And she said, and I think he might have a better way for you than this. I mean, do you really want to raise your son in this kind of an environment? I think Jesus has something better. And the, the, the drug lord said, you're right. And so he started to leave his three-year-old son with Sarah on weekends, which is his busiest time. And then another drug lord heard about this and asked Sarah to do the same. And then a third, right? And Sarah has become a mother to these three kids plus her own five. And they call her mom, and she's helping them believe that there is more to life than the culture of death that they were born into. And some people in her neighborhood are coming to Jesus and changing life in the way they're living their life, and some people in that neighborhood aren't. But those kids are getting a vision of a bigger life. That's how you take a stand for Jesus. Sarah is changing culture, not by yelling at it, but by simply living a more compelling story, making new and better and more culture. Folks don't need to be constantly told they're messing up. They know that. They'll convict themselves because the darker things get in this weird world of ours, the brighter the light is going to shine. Sarah knows who she is, healer of brokenness. She knows whose she is, daughter of the Most High King. Knows her why to bring dead people back to life. 
knows when and how to take a stand with truth and grace and humility. That's how you take a stand for Jesus. So where might you be called this week to do the right thing even if it costs you? Do the right thing at school or work or neighborhood or wherever you are and ask Jesus to help you do that. Because here's the thing. The bottom line on this is it's hard to do. It's hard to do, but it is so rewarding. It is so rewarding to be the person deep down we want to be and that Jesus designed us to be. And it just gives us joy and it gives other people joy as well. Let me close with a a video of a tennis player named Jack Sock who had a refreshing moment of integrity in a recent tennis match. Doesn't that just make you feel better? Uh, Doesn't that just feel, it's just refreshing to do the right thing. It just gives joy to yourself, to the people around you. It just feels good to do the right thing. And you know what? You're the person to do it this week. You are the person to do that this week where you live, work, play, or learn. You, not someone else, you. Because God has called you. He has equipped you. He has saved you. He has transformed you. He is making you new. You are a son. You are a daughter of the Most High King. And no matter what anyone else thinks about you, you are secure in the fact that he thinks you are amazing. He thought of you. He fought for you. He sought you. He bought you with his blood. You are redeemed, renewed, restored, revived. And he makes you everything that he designed you to be. And he sends me and he sends you to live a different story that sets people free. That's what it means to take a stand for Jesus. So Lord, thank you that you do that. Thank you for your love that gives us true courage and give us eyes to see the ways this week we can live a better story where we live, work, play, or learn and follow you more, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.